Council, we thank you for your flexibility. Our next case is State versus King, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, I'm Catherine Haycock, and my colleague Chris Brooks joins me today, and we are from the Attorney General's Office and representing the state in this matter. In this case, the Court of Appeals erred in finding that aggravating factors found by the trial court after a DWI conviction must be remanded for a new sentencing hearing. There's two principles that we all agree on in this case. First, a trial court's findings of fact-based aggravators instead of submitting them to the jury is both illegal under 2179A12 and unconstitutional pursuant to the Sixth Amendment in Blakely. We also agree that Blakely error committed pursuant to structured sentencing is subject to harmless error review. The issue remaining is how should the Blakely error in a DWI sentence be reviewed since DWI sentencing is specifically exempted from structured sentencing. The state's position is that DWI sentences with Blakely error are not entitled to heightened protection by way of the statutory amendment and that Blakely error is not prejudicial even when a DWI defendant's sentence is enhanced. There was a lot of developments in this area of the law from 2004 to 2006, and it's caused a lot of confusion and inconsistencies in the Court of Appeals with their opinions. In Geisler Crane in 2015, the Court of Appeals found that an aggravating factor necessarily increased the penalty beyond the statutory maximum because it prevented the defendant from being sentenced at a level five offender under, under 2179. And then in this case, the Court of Appeals majority held that our legislature is free to provide more protection than constitutionally required, and their decision to do so by amending the statute cannot be ignored. And the majority also said that the legislature intended to change the standards adopted by our courts. But then when you look at other cases from the Court of Appeals, McQueen in 2006, Spate in 2007, Coffey in 2008, Wood in 2012, and Kill in 2015, the Court of Appeals applied the harmless error standard as set forth in structured sentencing to Blakely errors and DWI sentencing. And the state's position is that those cases are the ones that the Court of Appeals should have followed in this case. And in accordance with the dissent, the state would ask that you interpret the statute as only a codification of the Blakely standard into the statute. And as the dissent points out, the amendment to 2179 is a provision to address the missing statutory procedural mechanism and eliminate the court's reliance on a common law procedural mechanism. And the dissent found that the majority's reason interprets section 2179A2 beyond what the legislature intended when it codified Blakely. And in the big picture, it's hard to imagine that the legislature intended that Blakely error for first degree murder sentences are to be reviewed for harmless error. And yet Blakely error committed during DWI sentencing is prejudicial when the sentence is enhanced. When both statutes were amended in exactly the same way with exactly the same language and both simply codified the new statutory mechanism for submitting aggravating factors to the jury. In this case, the defendant bears the burden to show a statutory violation under 15A1443, and the defendant is unable to do so in this case. If the jury would have found 
this error harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. If the jury would have found these facts, then the error is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. And the state contends that was done in this case. There was evidence of recklessness that the jury found in this case, well, they heard in this case. And the defendant was convicted of reckless driving, wanton disregard. Specifically in transcript two, pages 148 to 191, the jury heard that the defendant drove erratically on a busy highway in Leicester shortly after schools had dismissed for over seven miles and for at least 15 minutes, that the defendant pulled out in front of Trooper Underdonk and crossed over the double yellow line, causing her to slam on brakes, that the defendant crossed over the double yellow line over 30 times, repeatedly caused oncoming traffic to swerve, did not proceed through a green light when it turned green, slammed on brakes to avoid running into a school bus, and collided with a construction barrel, almost collided with a construction barrel. The defendant constantly slammed on brakes to avoid additional collisions, and he attempted to rev his vehicle and spin his tires when braking. A school bus even moved forward to get out of the defendant's way, and the defendant also almost hit a flagman and drove in the middle of the roadway. The defendant offered no contrary testimony to meet his high burden of prejudice in this case. And because the trial court found this and met this constitutional burden uh, that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, the trial court could consider this factor. And because there was an aggravating factor, had to sentence the defendant to level three in this case. And given the uncontroverted and extensive testimony of the law enforcement officers, regarding the defendant's reckless driving, his failure to offer contrary testimony, and the fact that the jury found him guilty of reckless driving, wanton disregard, there can be no serious question that if the instant case were remanded to the trial court for a jury determination of the aggravating factors presented, that the state would offer identical evidence in support of that aggravator, and that the jury would similarly find that the defendant's driving was especially reckless. And the state would ask that you reverse the, would re respectfully request that this court find that the Blakely error committed during DWI sentencing is subject to harmless error review in the same manner as Blakely error committed during structured sentencing. And the state will rest on its brief and reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you. May it please the court. I'm Karen Strickland and I represent Jason King. The Court of Appeals correctly ruled that the trial court erred in relying on an aggravating factor that was not proven by the state to the jury in violation of the DWI statute. This error was prejudicial because it raised the level of punishment imposed from a level four to a level three punishment. The Court of Appeals also correctly recognized that when the General Assembly amended the DWI statute in 2006, it went beyond the floor of constitutional protections required by Supreme Court decisions. Alternatively, this court can affirm on the basis that the error in this case was not harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. So I want to talk about how the state makes what I see as three main errors in how it interprets the DWI statute. First, the state disregards the plain text of the statute, which imposes a duty on the state to prove aggravating factors to the jury. 
just like the state must provide notice of those aggravating factors prior to trial. If the state fails to follow these procedures as required by statute, the trial cannot rely on those aggravating factors during sentencing. Second, the state relies on cases that are in a posit. And I would like to go into this point in more detail, but I will just summarize by saying that in particular, the state conflates cases applying the constitutional standard that existed prior to the Blakely Act, including Blackwell and McQueen, with post-Blakely Act decisions. And third, the state ignores that its reading of the statute would create inconsistent results. Specifically, the state's reading would starkly depart from other precedents recognizing that the state must comply with statutory requirements before using aggravating factors or else the, the trial court cannot rely on those factors at sentencing. Now, I want to go back to what the, the state said that there were two things that we agreed on and the second thing that the state said that we agreed on is that structured sentencing errors, or, I'm sorry, sentencing errors regarding aggravating factors under the Structured Sentencing Act are reviewable for harmless error. I presume the state is referring to the Blackwell decision and we don't agree with that at all. Um, I think that there's a fundamental misconception in this case and the way that the statute is being interpreted and that it's very important to take a step back and actually walk through the timeline of what happened with Blakely and the subsequent statutory amendments and all the cases that were pending at that time. So Blakely was decided by the US Supreme Court in 2004. And when that happened, the General Assembly was put in a position of having to decide what to do about whether to amend the Structured Sentencing Act and the DWI statute. And so in June 2005, the General Assembly amended the Structured Sentencing Act to add other provisions, some of which were to comply with Blakely, but the General Assembly also went beyond that and they added many other provisions that were not constitutionally required in order to protect the rights of defendants. And in December 2006, the General Assembly amended the DWI statute and also provided similar provisions. But critically, if you look at the text of these statutes, these amendments only operated prospectively to prosecutions initiated after the statutory amendments were enacted. But they did not apply to prosecutions that were already pending. And so with regard to those cases, there were a number of defendants, there were many cases uh, in which defendants challenged their sentences under the, the federal Blakely standard and subsequently the Washington v. Requenco harmless error standard, which very importantly are federal constitutional standards that applied prior to the Blakely Act. And so if you look at the Blackwell decision, um, from 2007, the first thing that you have to notice is that it's dealing with a judgment from 2002. So this is clearly a pre-Blakely Act case. The Blakely Act amendments did not apply in the Blackwell decision. So Blackwell does not answer, I think as, as Judge Gore seemed to imply in the dissent, I think there's just a misunderstanding that Blackwell somehow answered this question with regard to the Structured Sentencing Act. Blackwell did not answer that question 
Blackwell was simply applying, and in fact it says right here in the decision, after the United States Supreme Court issued Requenco in spite, which is another case cited in the state's uh, memorandum of additional authorities that is a pre-Blakely Act case, pre-DWI amendments, this court ordered supplemental briefing from the parties limited to the questions of whether there was error in this case pursuant to Washington v. Requenco, and if so, whether any error can be found to be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. So that is clearly a constitutional question that does not bear whatsoever on the subsequent statutory amendments that apply to uh, prosecutions initiated after June 30th, 2005 in the, the Structured Sentencing Act context and December 1st, 2006 in the DWI context. So I think that if you look at the, the cases that are cited, excuse me, cited in the state's brief, they're significantly overstating the support for their position. Um, by my count, so let's just take the, the DWI statute. So the, the state cites McQueen, uh, Spate, or Spite, however you pronounce that, which is in their memorandum of additional authorities, and Coffee. If you look at each of those, those are all cases where the offenses were committed before the DWI amendments, so they are applying the federal constitutional harmless error standard, and they do not address the subsequent amendments by the General Assembly. So by my count, the state actually has only two unpublished decisions from the Court of Appeals, Wood and Peel, in support of their position. And I think that this is very important because what the General Assembly did in 2005, in 2006, matters, and it has to be respected. And I guess I'll start with the initial point of when, when you look at the statutory scheme and what was going on at that time, in fact, the General Assembly didn't have to do anything at all to comply with Blakely because the Structured Sentencing Act uh, and DWI provisions were held to be unconstitutional, the way that those, those statutes were structured, but uh, there was a system of common law submission of special verdicts to submit aggravating factors to the jury. And if I can read from the Blackwell decision, this court said, said in Blackwell, it is difficult to imagine a more appropriate set of circumstances for the use of a special verdict than those existing in the instant case in which a special verdict in compliance with the above limitations would have safeguarded a defendant's right to a jury trial under Blakely. And so I, I think that what this shows is that the existing scheme with these special verdicts was constitutionally adequate. And so the General Assembly didn't actually have to amend the statute at all. Um, and so by amending the statute, the General Assembly made a very clear policy legislative choice to create these statutory requirements. And so for that reason, all of the constitutional cases that the state is citing, Blackwell, McQueen, Spate, Coffee, all of these cases, they're just in a posit. They don't answer the statutory question before the court. And so I think the cases that are more on point that do answer the statutory uh, question before the court uh, are Geisler Crane, Hughes, and I submitted a memorandum of additional authorities myself yesterday, which is other similar cases. There are actually many, I didn't cite all of them, from the Court of Appeals that 
stand for this principle that when the statute, whether it's the Blakely Act and structured sentencing or the DWI statute, when it imposes requirements on the state to proceed with an aggravating factor, whether it's to allege non-statutory aggravating factors in the indictment, to provide notice before trial, 30 days before trial under structured sentencing, 10 days before trial under the DWI statute, or whether it, this, this statute provides, it states that the burden is on the state to prove aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, each of those cases, when the state fails to comply with those requirements, the Court of Appeals has held that the trial court would err by relying on those factors at sentencing, and the court has vacated and remanded for sentencing. And the state simply fails to distinguish or explain why it is wrong or unpersuasive this body of precedent interpreting the Blakely Act and the DWI statute in this context. And so I, I think that because under the statutory canon that like provisions must be interpreted alike, it really would make very little sense to have a statutory standard where the state has to follow these requirements under the statute or else the aggravating factor is even using words like unusable in the prosecution is what the Court of Appeals has said. It would be very strange to have this developed body of case law applying those requirements and then you have this other requirement that the state bear the burden of presenting and proving an aggravating factor to the jury. The state fails to do so, but yet that is for some reason evaluated under a constitutional federal harmless error standard that pre-existed the enactment of the statute. That frankly makes very little sense to me, and I think that the state really does not reconcile um, those provisions. And I would also note about that body of case law, like for example, um, the Hughes decision cited in our brief, it does not matter in Hughes, for example, uh, the defendant didn't contest the existence of the aggravating factors. Uh, there wasn't, you know, presumably in that case, um, if the state's argument were correct, then the, the error would have been harmless because the defendant didn't uh, contest the existence of the aggravating factors, and so the state's non-compliance with the statute could be excused. But that's not what happened. In all of these cases, the court said, no, the, this statute exists for a reason. It's because the General Assembly specifically intended to go above and beyond um, the constitutional requirements and imposed these statutory obligations on the state um, to follow these requirements before aggravating factors can be used at sentencing. And if the state doesn't do that, the inquiry is over, we're done. There was error by the trial court. Um, and so that's really, that's, that's the interpretation that we're advocating for, that there is this body of case law from the Court of Appeals that is persuasive, that the state has provided no reason to distinguish it, um, and so it, it should be followed in this case. And I will say as well, the state on page eight, well, there's a few things I, I could say about the state's brief, but on page eight of the state's reply brief, they cite several cases from this court where 
you know, a harmless error standard was applied to like jury instructions or submitting evidence to the jury. And I think those cases, like the constitutional cases that predate the, um, the Blakely Act and the DWI amendments, are also distinguishable because they just don't, they don't involve this issue of the state failing to follow the statutory procedure for aggravating factors. And so th those cases are really just beside the point. Um, the state in its opening brief, I believe, also cites a case called State v. Lopez from this court. But that case also does not involve an issue of failing to follow the statutory procedures for aggravating factors. It involves the state making an improper closing argument. Um, and this court ap applied the usual standards that apply to that type of issue. But again, I just don't see how that case really has any applicability to the statutory interpretation that is in play here. Um, so I'm happy to answer the court's questions at any point. But I think that's kind of, that is the crux of our statutory argument. Um, and obviously, if the court agrees with us on that, then the issue about whether the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt does not need to be reached because the state simply can't rely on an aggravating factor that it didn't submit to the jury and that it didn't follow the statutory procedures. But I also think that if the court did not want to reach the statutory issue, in this case, the court could affirm on the basis of um, that the error was not harmless beyond reasonable doubt. And I do think there's a little bit of a, a disagreement between our side and the state about what the standard is for that type of error. Um, if I heard the state correctly during their argument, and they say something to this effect in their reply brief, they say that the burden is on us to show that there's a reasonable possibility that the result would have been different. I don't understand the standard to be that way. So if the state is going to make a constitutional argument about the federal harmless error standard, then we have to be consistent. And under that standard, the burden is on the state to show beyond all reasonable doubt that the error was harmless. And we just don't think that the state can meet that burden in this case because of all of the issues with the evidence described in our brief um, and you know the fact that impaired driving is inherently reckless. So to show that driving was especially reckless, there have to be excessive aspects of recklessness, not ordinary, ordinarily present in the offense of impaired driving. And that is such a spectrum of conduct that I think it makes it inherently very difficult for a court to predict how a jury would have ruled, in, or I'm sorry, would have found in the first instance if that aggravating factor had been um, presented to the jury. But kind of beyond that initial conceptual problem, I think the evidence in this case was neither overwhelming nor uh, uncontroverted. The state primarily relied on testimony from Trooper Onderdonk, but there was no video evidence, there was no other eyewitness testimony to corroborate what she observed. There were certain inconsistencies between what she testified to and what Deputy Martin testified to. Counsel, I'm sorry, are, yes. are you suggesting that there are no facts in this record from which a jury could have found uh, the aggravating factor? Uh, no, Your Honor, that is not what we are suggesting. The, the jury certainly could have found that aggravating factor, but that's not the question at this stage. The question at this stage is not whether the evidence would have been sufficient, 
uh, to submit that factor to the jury. It's whether the evidence was so overwhelming and uncontroverted that it is inevitable that the jury would have reached that result of finding the, um, the aggravating factor. So because that standard is so difficult to meet, and this is an aggravating factor that is not like, you know, some of the cases are involved, well, was the defendant's license revoked? Or was there $1,000 or more in damage done to a vehicle? Those types of aggravating factors are a bit more objective in that you can, it's kind of either true or not. This is something where I think the jury would have to exercise its discretion and its judgment and weigh the evidence in front of it, uh, which in this case is conflicting. I mean, you have, for example, Deputy Martin saying that Mr. King came to a full stop at a red light and then he pulled over very quickly, I quote, with no problems on page 176 of the transcript. And uh, so things like that, the jury could consider and say, well, maybe this aggravating factor shouldn't exist because in some senses, his, his driving was not consistently excessively uh, reckless, even if they did find that it was impaired driving and it was reckless driving. And you know, I also want to note, we pointed out in our brief, that some of the quotes that the state relies on in their brief are really from the suppression hearing, which the jury never heard. So for example, Deputy Martin's testimony that Mr. King was swerving across the center line, quote, pretty much the whole time until we got to the red light is on page 59 of the transcript, which is the suppression hearing. So the jury never heard that testimony. If anything, he was more equivocal, um, this, this Deputy Martin, when we got to the trial in terms of you know, what, what he testified to. And he said he wasn't really sure um, that he would have pulled Mr. King over and initiated a traffic stop without having heard the call from dispatch to pull him over. So I just think in terms of all of those discrepancies and keeping in mind that the trial court judge in this case sat through the suppression hearing and the trial, which kind of amplifies the, the difficulty in the trial court finding for itself that this aggravating factor existed rather than allowing the jury to make findings about that aggravating factor. I think there's kind of all of these red flags here that make it very difficult to say, oh, this just most certainly inevitably would have been overwhelmingly and uncontrovertedly found by the jury. It's just inevitable. Um, I just don't think that that's the case. So I think certainly that that is an alternative basis to affirm the Court of Appeals decision um, if the court disagrees with my statutory argument, but I think that um, for all the reasons that I've stated, the, um, the statutory argument in this case is fairly straightforward. The plain text of the statute requires the state to take all of these procedural steps, and the General Assembly specifically enacted those requirements with the idea in mind that the state would have to comply with them in order to protect defendants rights post-Blakely, and this court has to respect that, uh, that policy decision made by the General Assembly and enforce the plain terms of the statute. I just want to ask you a question. I, I understood your brief to be arguing that the error here was prejudicial because it impacted the level of um, sentencing in this particular case. Yeah. And so, so then presumably, if there was a failure to follow the statutory requirements, 
but the aggravating factors in the end didn't change the sentence, would that be a situation where there was um, harmless error? That's exactly right, Justice Earls. And, and that's why I think we really, we disagree with the state's framing of this issue as a structural error problem. I mean, to begin with, that's really a construct that comes more from the constitutional context, so it's not really a good fit. But even so, um, you know, we are engaging with the prejudice analysis that we are required to prove. And in accordance with this, this line of Court of, of Appeals decisions, um, what you have to show to prove prejudice is that it impacted the sentence. The sentence was increased as a result of this erroneous aggravating factor. So in this particular case, because we're dealing with the DWI Sentencing Act, um, the, the way that the trial court imposes sentences is very confined. So if there are only aggravating factors and there are no mitigating factors, then the trial court must impose a level three sentencing. Conversely, if there are only mitigating factors and there are no aggravating factors, the court must impose level five sentencing. And then if there are aggravating and mitigating factors, then the court engages in a, a balancing. So in this particular case, there were three aggravating factors, all of which the, were erroneous, the state concedes are erroneous. Um, one of them was one that was just not included in the statute. Another one was one that the, the state failed to provide notice prior to the trial, which is interesting because the state seems to concede they can't rely on that factor, but yet they want to rely on the third factor. Um, and so the third factor, they say, was erroneous, but they want it to be reviewed under this constitutional federal harmless error standard that doesn't apply as our position under the statute. And so that's the reason why it's prejudicial. If there were any other aggravating factors that were upheld, then as a matter of law, because there were no mitigating factors in this case, the aggravating factors would outweigh any mitigating factors and the sentence would be the same. So there would be no prejudice. So that prejudice analysis is consistent with you know, all of the other cases from the Court of Appeals that I've found that are dealing with this type of error. So if there are no further questions, we believe that the Court of Appeals decision was well-reasoned and should be affirmed. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court. I just want to maybe clarify all of this. I mean, there's no issue that the statute was violated. The, child, the, um, the aggravating factor should have gone to the jury. The question is, what kind of review is out there? I mean, 15A1443 talks about if a statute is violated, um, statute's violated, and it's the defendant's burden, they've got to show the error and it's prejudicial. Just on that analysis alone, it, it, I don't mean to sound circular, but at this time, statute's violated, was the defendant prejudiced? Well, if this court conducts a prejudice analysis, I think then is when it court has to get into the harmless error look, because the issue is, was the defendant prejudiced by the finding of this aggravating factor? Well, the fact that it wasn't prejudiced because that aggravating factor was found, even though it violated the statute, it's harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. If it had been instructed by the jury, the jury had found it, and we talked about the argument there, there's sufficient evidence to support that aggravating factor. So it may seem it's circular because we are talking about the harmless error at the end of the day, because that's the real true question. Was the error, the finding of the act of um, the aggravating factor harmless beyond reasonable doubt? The evidence presented here was that it was harmless beyond reasonable doubt. 
if it's harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, then there's no prejudice to the defendant in this case. It's not just about the aggravating level or moving it up. It's about had a jury found it, would it be harmless? And the answer to that question is yes. And we, as counsel said, you know, transcript pages 148 uh, through 162 and then also on to 191 is the evidence presented. And I just want to point something out. Um, it wasn't specifically briefed, but it's an issue that probably needs to be addressed because counsel raised her cases. Um, and there's several of them talking about notice. If there is an issue with notice of the aggravating factors, that's a violation of the statute. Then the question then becomes, was the defendant prejudiced by that lack of notice? The case is State versus Reeves that counsel cited and uh, Gressel, I can't pronounce it. Last name starts in Gessel Cran. I'm sorry I can't pronounce it, but that case cites Reeves. And it's basically if there's no notice, it's pretty much prejudicial error. No, it's just like if the jury improperly found the aggravating factor. You've got to point out, was the statute violated? Yes. Is there prejudice? Um, we didn't brief that in this case um, when the court found it because there's five or so court of appeals opinions that say it's pretty much error. Um, but at the end of the day, why the state is arguing the one aggravating factor is because that aggravating factor was provided the notice. We didn't need to go into the arguments on all the other things. If you've got a clear, you've got a clear argument that the defendant was provided notice, the aggravating factor was supported, it was a harmless error, and under the prejudice analysis, we'd ask this court to affirm based on the dissent in this case. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you.